This is In Conversation from Apple News. I'm David Green, filling in for Shamita Basu. Today, the big business of college sports. For the next few weeks, I'm going to be filling in for Shamita while she is out on maternity leave. You might recognize me, or at least my voice, from NPR's Morning Edition, if you listened. I was a co-host there for many years. Since leaving NPR in 2020, I've been working on, well, a whole bunch of different projects. And one thing that I've been digging into recently is sports. I've always been a diehard sports fan, but more and more, I've been exploring sports through a more journalistic lens, talking to professional athletes, analysts, industry experts. So that's going to be my focus for the next few weeks. And for this episode, we're talking about money and college sports. For more than a century, amateurism has been a cornerstone of college sports. Meaning student-athletes were, well, considered just that, amateurs. They played for the love of the game, for pride in their school. And according to NCAA rules, they could not be paid to play. But over the years, collegiate sports, specifically men's basketball and football, have become massive moneymakers, massive revenue generators for many colleges and universities. We're talking about billions and billions of dollars. They've made so much money recently that in the past year, they've been able to pay their head football coaches, on average, $6.2 million a year. That is Kevin Blackestone. He's a frequent panelist on ESPN, also a columnist for The Washington Post. So where do the rest of those billions and billions of dollars go? The athletic directors, who often have multi-million dollar salaries, they go to the conference commissioners who also make multi-million dollar salaries. They go to pay for these athletic departments. It is not unusual for these coaches, athletic directors, and conference commissioners to have access to things like private jets or maybe even a private helicopter to get them to fly out to see the latest high school football recruit that they want to see. In addition to being a longtime sports commentator, Kevin is a journalism professor at the University of Maryland, which happens to be a Division I football school. He told me he can see the brand new training facility built for the football team from his office. And I asked him if those new facilities were a little nicer than his office. (laughs) You know what? I would not hesitate to say that the football practice facility with offices and everything could be the nicest on on campus right now. So what about the athletes? Where's their cut in all of this? Facing backlash a few years ago, the NCAA instituted a policy that allows athletes to make money off of their brands. But that's totally separate from the money that's being generated by these institutions. So now the NCAA is under pressure again, facing a slew of lawsuits over compensation for these athletes. The NCAA argues that paying players would fundamentally change the whole nature of amateur sports. Kevin told me a hugely important factor in all of this is race. One of the reasons I got into journalism was to study and write about and report about social issues. I wanted to bring that lens to sports as well, because not a lot of people are doing it. Mm. And we have to understand what it is that we're, we're watching. And I think people are 
uncomfortable acknowledging the critique of college sports as a plantation economy. Hmm. And the reason I bring up the plantation economy is because the laborers in college sports who generate the bulk of the revenue are black males who play college football and college basketball. Those are the two sports that are behind the billion-dollar industry that college sports have become. And as a friend of mine always says, there are two types of sports in college athletics. There are revenue-generating sports, football and basketball, and there are expenditure sports, which are basically every other sport, maybe not women's college basketball. It is from the largesse of the labor of black males in football and basketball that allow those sports to live. Hmm. And so if you step back and think about it, these black males are out in the field of football and basketball generating all these revenues for the house on the hill to be able to prosper doing all the other things that happen there, none of which are things that those black male laborers participate in. That is the critique, the plantation economy critique that you can apply to college sports today. Wow. And that's, that is, that's heavy. I mean, just listening to you describe that, it makes me feel like, you know, we talk so much about racial justice in our country. It sounds like this is one massive, unacknowledged facet of that that we're just beginning to acknowledge now. Absolutely. This is a black male issue. This is a racial justice issue. It's an economic justice issue. It's all of that. Um, a number of years ago, 10 years ago or so, uh, maybe a little bit more, Sean Harper, who at the time was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, a black professor, and he's now at USC, was studying the experience of black male athletes at predominantly white institutions, particularly the Power Five schools. And there was one thing that he mentioned in his research that just stung me. And that was the fact that, and this is still true today, no more than 3% of undergraduate enrollees are black males. But upwards of 50 and 60% of the rosters of football teams and basketball teams at those same schools are black males. Wow. Black males represent a tiny percentage of the people who are coming to these schools, but they represent a majority of, of the players on the field in those big sports. Exactly. Which to me means that for the most part, they wind up on college campuses not to be part of the class of students who are there to be educated, but are really just part of this college athletic industrial complex that needs to generate massive amounts of revenue in entertaining us with sport. Well, I, I want to be really, really specific. I mean, you talk about college football, you talk about college basketball, how those are the big revenue generators. Um, those are separate things, right? I mean, the, the, the idea of a student athlete in some sports, on some college campuses, I mean, that, that still exists, right? We're, sure. we're talking predominantly about these big-time sports, these right. big revenue generators at, at bigger schools. Right. We can still mythologize sports on smaller campuses, but the cameras don't go there <laughs> for the most part. 
I mean, ESPN has expanded its uh, net for content, and now they are showing far more competitions between smaller schools and high schools, I should add. Thank you, LeBron James, <laughs> than ever before. But for the most part, the balance between the mission of the university and athletics is considerably different. Well, I mean, can you just lay out, you know, you, you, you're at the University of Maryland. You're at a, yep. a Division One basketball and football school. Yep. I mean, how much of a job is it really to be an athlete versus a college student? Sure. Well, a number of years ago, we were putting on a symposium here at the uh, Shirley Povich Center for Sports Journalism where we were talking about just that. What is it really like to be a, a college athlete yeah. at this level? And we had a panel discussion with some coaches and players. And I'll never forget, we went to a Q&A with the audience. And one of the football players was a lineman. And a young woman stood up in the audience and she told the player that she resented him. And she said, I resent you because I have to work three jobs in order to pay my way through the University of Maryland. And you play football and you get all of these benefits. Hmm. And the football player responded to her by telling her, he said, well, I understand your point of view, but I just want you to know that I've been on a gurney four times for playing football. Wow. For having to go in and get some sort of operation. And he said, those surgeries and that rehab has cost me time in the classroom. And should my dream of becoming an NFL player not work out, I need to lean back on the education that I'm supposedly getting here at the University of Maryland. He said, so you may have to sacrifice time or you may have to figure out a way to piece together enough money to continue your education here at the University of Maryland. He said, but I'm giving my body. I have to persevere in a different sort of way. It is stories like this one that make Kevin and others say that these athletes need to be paid. I mean, keep in mind, the vast majority of college athletes are not going to make it to the NFL or the NBA. According to the NCAA, less than 2% of college basketball and football players are going to go pro. For this period of time that they're in college, this is an opportunity for them to start earning money. You know, if we believe that education, particularly college education, gives you that much greater chance to step up one rung when it comes to social and economic mobility, then if we grant these athletes that extra four or five years head start on stepping up, I think that's a good thing. And the NCAA seems to be getting the message. In 2021, under huge pressure, they decided to allow players to earn money through what is known as name, image, and likeness. A lot of people call this NIL. It gives players the opportunities to make money off their brands. And for some student-athletes, NIL has been great. LSU's women's basketball champion Angel Reese's NIL earnings are estimated to be around $1.7 million. Angel Reese copyrighted her uh, nickname, Bayou Barbie, and is cashing in on that. 
Shador Sanders, a quarterback at the University of Colorado, has deals with tons of companies, including Beats by Dre, Nike, Mercedes-Benz, Gatorade, Smoothie King. This is Shador Sanders. I'm partnering with Smoothie King and get you my favorite smoothie, the Shador. Sanders is making an estimated $4.7 million from his NIL deals. But only a handful of extremely elite and popular athletes are making that kind of money. Most NIL deals aren't that lucrative. Plus, Kevin says another problem with the system is that it is not at all well-regulated. These are really state rules, and there are a bunch of states that don't have any rules for NIL to govern it. And where there are no state rules, it's been left up to individual colleges and universities to come up with their own rules. So as you can see, it's a patchwork. Another issue that's come up under NIL are what's known as collectives. Collectives are groups that technically operate independent from the schools they're supporting. Roughly 200 of them exist today. And the way they work, they collect donations from supporters of a college team, and then they funnel that money to college athletes using NIL deals. Kevin says there are a lot of problems with these collectives. For one thing, they're unregulated and have little transparency. Already, there's at least one example of a student signing a multi-million dollar NIL deal with a collective that just fell through. At its core, though, Kevin argues that the problem with NIL is that this system operates totally separately from those tens of billions of dollars that are being brought in by the institutions. When we talk about name, image, and likeness, this is not about revenue sharing. This is not about the redistribution of wealth. This is not about health care. It's not about workers' compensation. It recognizes none of that. So I asked Kevin if he could reimagine this system, how would he do it? What would be a better version of what we have now? My remedy for years has been to acknowledge that college football and college basketball, to a large extent, are businesses and they're big business and that they don't necessarily have a real place on the college campus. And I would like to see, and I think we're getting there, that the athletic departments for the the biggest schools that we have that bring in all this money, that pay out these million dollar salaries, should incorporate and that they should pay right fees back to the universities at which they are already associated to use those facilities to wear the colors of those schools and the names of those schools and cut their own television deals, just like the NFL or the NBA or the WNBA, and treat their laborers like the employees of the institutions that they are. You're talking about like almost separate leagues, like a, a national college football league, a national college basketball league, and, and treating exactly. players like employees. Exactly. That's my remedy. And then people say, oh, what about Title IX? Which we should say is, is a law that's in place to make sure there are not inequities between women's sports and, and men's sports. So if we're only talking about men's college basketball and college football, what, what about Title IX? I mean, how do we make sure that women playing volleyball, women playing basketball are enjoying the fruits that athletes in these separate leagues are enjoying? So I go back to the beginning of our discussion. There are two types of sports. There are revenue-generating sports and there are expenditure sports. There would still be money in rights fees to pay for the crew team, to pay for the men's and women's tennis team, to pay for the women's volleyball team. 
So a team in the National College Football League affiliated with the University of Michigan would have to pay Michigan rights fees to be affiliated, and the University sure. of Michigan could use that money to pay for other sports. Other sports. That's one of my suggestions. And then people will say, well, what about the education athletes? Rather than tying an athlete's eligibility to a classroom where he or she is going to have to find the time to balance with their athletic responsibilities, why not give them the opportunity as an employee of this corporation to pursue higher ed as they see fit and not have it tied to their athletic performance? So if a high school kid is dreaming of playing football, they could think, here are my choices. Like, I could go to a smaller school that's not involved in this big money, and I could play football and be a, a student-athlete as much as that's possible. Um, mm-hmm. Or if I'm good enough, I have the chance to be 19 years old and just get a job playing football. Exactly. Affiliated with a university and figure out my education totally separately. Sure. And get tuition remission like any other employee on the campus. I guess I'm, I'm following the logic here, and I see how it takes care of confronting exploitation that we've seen for so long, especially in these big revenue-generating sports. I guess here's my question as a, as a sports fan. Yeah. If we basically create, like, the minor leagues of the NFL, which is this National College Football League. Mm-hmm. Am I going to be as excited to watch that? Because part of the oh, appeal, part oh, yes, of the appeal, was this fantasy right. that I'm I'm watching, you know, college students right. on the field, which made it separate from the NFL, separate from the NBA, and and maybe that's what we just need to confront. But will it be as as money making? Oh yeah, you know what? I like to get out and be a fan. Unfortunately, or fortunately, maybe this job hasn't jaded me that much. So a few months ago, a buddy of mine went and I went to Alabama, Tuscaloosa, to the Tennessee-Tuscaloosa game. Bought tickets, go down there to take in this game. David, I've been to a gazillion college football games and a gazillion NFL games. And like I said, I'm just going in as a fan, to experience a fan. 100,000 plus people in this stadium for this game. The adulation for the the laborers on the field before the game was unbelievable. It had a little NASCAR vibe to it. I don't know if you've ever been to a NASCAR event, but one of the cool things that NASCAR does is before a race, they allow fans to basically go into the garages and meet their favorite yeah. drivers and crew chiefs. a very fan-friendly event. It was basically like that at Alabama. You could go down on the field before the game and— walk around the stadium and watch your favorite college players warming up. And if you had a special pass, you could walk inside the gate that cordoned off the field and get even closer to them. That's not going to go away, you're saying? That's not going to go away. And those 100,000-plus people that showed up for that game that day did not all go to the University of Alabama. They grew up in Alabama, rooting for Alabama. And so I don't think that they're going to care one way or another whether or not you know, the, the star running back is a paid employee of the university or is studying communications. 
I am going to say I am not quite as convinced as Kevin is that this is not going to change things a lot and change the fan experience, but uh, I trust Kevin. And, you know, though Kevin has thought about all of this a ton, he will be the first to say that we're not likely to see a change like a national college football league come anytime soon. He is, though, pretty optimistic that a wave of lawsuits this year could mean that very soon athletes are going to be paid. You know, I think the most critical case right now in college sports is Johnson versus the NCAA, which is slowly meandering its way through the federal courts. I think it's in a district court right now in Philadelphia. And it's a lawsuit brought by a former Villanova football player, Trey Johnson, and another few Division I student athletes arguing once again that the idea of the student athlete is a myth. And that, in fact, college athletes should be considered employees subject to the Fair Labor Standards Act. And so far, their case has not been shot down. And this is just the latest salvo. I should also point out, going to Northwestern, that the attempt, I can't remember now how long ago, maybe 10 years ago, for members of their football team to unionize was originally given the green light by the Chicago regional office of the National Labor Relations Board. And then it was shot down when it got to the National Labor Relations Board. Well, the head of the Chicago National Labor Relations Board at that time, which greenlighted it, is now second in charge of the National Labor Relations Board. And the person for whom he works has stated on more than one occasion that she believes that college athletes are, in fact, eligible to be viewed as employees and treated as employees. Hmm. So I think the pendulum has swung in the favor of acknowledging that college athletes are employees. And what onus should we put on ourselves as fans? I mean to say, like, I mean, you used a phrase earlier that really stuck with me. We have to know what we're watching. And that makes me now go into any college football or college basketball game that I'm watching with a sense of responsibility. Like, I feel like you're saying it's okay to watch and be a fan, but you need to acknowledge what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to bring pressure to bear upon those who can make decisions to change the structure of college athletics. And so how do you do that? Well, if you live in a district where your congressperson is on Capitol Hill saying that paying players would be the ruination of college sports, you let them know that, No, it wouldn't be, because I'm still going to go to the game. And I feel a lot more comfortable knowing that the star wide receiver is getting a paycheck and maybe even more importantly, has some sort of health care or workers comp should he get hurt in a game and not be able to continue playing. Your message to sports fans is don't contribute to a plantation economy without demanding change to do what you can to make that go away. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not telling anybody to turn away from the games. I would be hypocritical if I said that. I fully admit I am, I am addicted to sports and I'm not turning away from college sports. It is spectacular, but it can be a lot more equitable and we can treat those athletes with a higher level of well-being than we do now. Kevin, uh, it's always great talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Dave. You can find Kevin Blackstone's columns for The Washington Post on Apple News, and we'll include a link to his latest on our show notes page. 